hi, you're listening to Service from Hell, a podcast featuring people that are currently in customer service positions or the lucky few that got out and all of the good, bad, and infinitely irritating things that go along with that work. I'm actor and writer Kate Gaffney and am uniquely qualified to discuss this as I used to work at a very busy and very popular comedy club in Los Angeles. And at least one of you listening right now has probably grabbed me and told me you were ready to order when I was running around like a crazy person. So let's eat. Joining us via Zoom is award-winning author, entrepreneur, professional dancer, husband, father of five, and tired person, Chris Lynham. Chris is the author of the new book, The Choreography of Customer Service, High-Touch Service in a Touch-Free World, which came out in February of 2022. And at the time of this recording, three days ago, it was on Kindle, and it'll be out in hardback on February 15th of 2022. Congrats, Chris. And he's joining us to discuss how customer service, and wait for this audience, take a pause, gets to be an incredible experience that helps you in all areas of your life. Mm-hmm, shock and awe. After a basketball injury, Lynam took up swing dancing and decided to take a summer job at Arthur Murray Dance Studios. He stuck around and was then selected as a founding member of the Arthur Murray International Training Team. During this same time, Chris helped to develop hundreds of professional dancers and dance instructors, dozens of dance studio managers, and several new small business owners. Now, over two decades later, that summer job is where Lynam met his wife, found his calling, and where he continues to discover how rewarding the teaching process is. I better know Chris from two minutes ago when we chatted over Zoom prior to pushing record on my equipment. So that said, Chris, tell us, how stoked are you for your book release? How on earth do you find joy in customer service? How much do you love dancing? Tell us. Oh my gosh. Well, I am so happy to be here, Kate. Thanks so much. And uh, and I will tell you, like I am a uh, I am a bad customer service survivor, and that's why I feel obligated to write a book like this. Um, but I am super stoked for my book release. It was uh, a very kind of fluky situation, one of those kind of dream scenarios that you just kind of, you know, sort of wish about when you're kind of, you know, writing your articles for your English class or something. And um, and so I just got a random email from from a literary agent that happened to read some of my work on um, on a site called Quora, and um, and I used to write on there all the time. And um, and then he said, "Do you have a do you have a book idea you want to pitch to us?" And um, and so I was like, "I I do." And um, and what's interesting was, as much as I really wanted the opportunity to be able to write a book and to pitch this idea, I was still a little scared because you know you're sort of putting everything out there. And I was the guy that said for a long time, like, oh yeah, one, when I write my book or one of these days I'm gonna write my book. And um, so here's the cool thing. You mentioned my wife earlier. My wife kept asking me, did you set up the appointment yet? Did you set up the appointment yet? And I was giving her the whole, oh yeah, well we're playing email tag and going back and forth. And here's this like life-changing opportunity, right? And, um, and so finally she logs into my email account impersonates me, sets up the appointment, comes up to me and says, your book for Thursday. And, um, and so that was, you know, and, and then we just renewed our wedding vows right then. And then. So. <laughs> that's a ride or die right there though. That's a really lovely opportunity to be like, okay, that's the push I needed, which we as artists need sometimes. So that's really oh, lovely. Sure. So then how quickly after that, that appointment did you start developing the actual book or were you using previously written essays? Yeah, so what I did was um, all of the kind of the core concepts of the book um, really kind of came from, you know, years of, you know, owning, you know, Arthur Murray Dance Studios. And, and so um, a lot of the material that I was using was stuff we went from 
We had planned to open our second school, like our first brand new location in 2007. We were like, it's time for us to kind of, you know, build up the next team and build up a new location. And so, and it was gonna be the first new location in Northern California for Arthur Murray in like three decades or something crazy like that. And, um, and so when we were doing that, um, we had everything kind of set up for our second location. And then two months after we opened it, Arthur Murray International, our corporate headquarters, called us and said, we need you to take over this other location in your area because we're gonna close it down. So can you take it over? And so, so in the process, it's almost like if you were expecting uh, a baby and then you found out that you're gonna have twins, like that's kind <laughs> of what happened. And so, um, so just like with kids, like once we were outnumbered, we really needed to find some way to make training like really systematic. And so, um, so that's where um, I used to keep all these really, you know, these, these old notebooks and stuff. And so I started kind of writing out all these concepts and I used a lot of like, um, you, know, you know, you just kind of do audio recordings and stuff. I would have these long commutes and then I just started developing kind of the core principles of this book. And then that's where it all took off. But I, I was able to take something and then make a consistent kind of training regimen for all of our team, rather than just having to rely on, well, this, this school has this one person who's really good. And this person has this other school that, that's really good at this other thing. And then just kind of accepting the results, we could, we could now kind of train so that way everybody understood and we're all speaking the same language. So it was really like, not to you know overdo it, but it, I feel like you now I, I think you can connect so much stuff to sports, and so it was almost like we finally finished our playbook, and and that's really how I approached it. Well, look, I mean, I consider dancing a hardcore sport, and the training is pretty insane. And so I want to go back to your so when you were growing up, you played basketball. That was kind of your jam. Sounds like. Yeah. Then did you always want to dance, or were you sort of dancing on the side, or was your focus more being an entrepreneur and also a basketball player? Yeah, you know, my focus was like picking up on chicks and, uh, <laughs> and doing it, doing it really poorly. Um, <laughs> I had, I had all the interest, but I didn't have like the confidence really. But, um, but yeah, I was, I was a master of the friend zone. Is really what I was. But, um, uh, and I always say that I majored in changing my major. But I, I felt like I was interested in so many different things, and so dancing really wasn't on my radar, other than like going to house parties and and doing the Running Man and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it was a lot of fun. Um, but uh, but what what's interesting is that, gosh, about almost maybe two years before I started with Arthur Murray, my dad, I found out my dad was taking ballroom dance lessons and I, and I literally tried to have an intervention to talk him out of it. And (laughs) I was like, what are you doing? And I was like, you're paying money for dance lessons. And he was like, yeah. And what I didn't know at the time that I found out later, which made me feel really horrible. But um, what I found out later was my dad um, got diagnosed as a diabetic his doctor gave him one of those like threatening prognoses and, and said, if you don't change your lifestyle, then this next, the next time that you come in, it's gonna be really bad news. And so he's like, you gotta do something. So my dad started taking dance lessons every single day after work. And um, he ended up losing like 30 pounds. He met my stepmother, they're still married. They've been married for, I don't know, gosh, close to 25, 30 years or something now. And, um, and they met in the dance class and, um, and he was so happy. I mean, and, I, and here I was as like a young punk telling him like, what are you, a hundred years old? Why are you gonna ballroom dance, you know? <laughs> and, um, and so, and then a kind of a fluke situation is that then I got into swing dancing, not even considering that it might be somehow related to ballroom dancing. And then my dad ended up showing up at the same nightclub that I was at. And he was just there to, to, to practice some of his moves. And I'm like, oh. why are you here, you know? And I didn't connect 
the dots. And, and so it was, it just, it was such a weird kind of fluky thing, but, um, so he takes full credit for me getting the job at Arthur Murray. <laughs> As he should. <laughs> yeah. 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 But it's really interesting. You know, you, it's kind of that thing about, you know, identity. Like some people you think the path that they're on has been a path that they've foreseen for such a long time. Right. And, and for me, this was so serendipitous and, you know, the basketball injury thing was, I was, I, I got a, you know, basketball was like my, I poured everything into that. Um, and then, um, and then I got injured in a practice and they had a misdiagnosis. And so they didn't catch that I had a broken wrist. And, and so for almost a year, I was trying to play through a broken wrist. Oh no, 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 no. And yeah. And it was so, it was so crazy to see your, your skill set that you work so hard for just deteriorate. And, oh. um, and so, and I don't, I've never been, you know, I didn't go to the, to a therapist or anything, but I'm sure that that's the closest I've ever been to being like, you know, clinically depressed. I mean, it was just really, you know, devastating. I felt like, like that identity was just kind of killed off in a, in a murder mystery or something. And, um, and so, um, and then a buddy of mine was just in a, (laughs) a buddy of mine I used to go to nightclubs with. And between the two of us, I was, I was clearly the better dancer. You know, I, this is like, we were the bottom, we were the, I was the top of the bottom in terms of the confident class at a nightclub. <laughs> and so, um, but my buddy, my buddy Brian was like, hey man, like we're in our speech class and he leans over, he's like, guess, guess who I'm taking out this Wednesday? And I was like, who? And he's like, Karen. And Karen was one of these girls in our school at this junior college where everyone knew her by her first name because she was like the closest thing to like a celebrity because she was like a working model. Like, and she was in our speech class together. And I'm like, you're, you are crazy, you know? And I said some other choice words and I'm like, you're, you're, you're crazy, you know? And he was like, no, watch this. And he, he whispers to Karen, who is a couple rows ahead of us. He's like, hey, Karen, where are we going on Wednesday? And she turns around looking like a model and she goes, oh, we're going swing dancing. And, oh my gosh. and I look at my buddy, Brian, and I was like, you, how, what, you know? And, and, and I was like, in my head, I said, I don't know how you did this but I will learn this swing dancing and I will dominate, you know? And so, so help um, me God. <laughs> oh yeah. And so that, that was now kind of the, that was just the little kind of, I just slipped into it. And then what's funny is then Karen and I ended up becoming um, really close friends and she ended up being like my, my, my steady dance partner whenever we'd go out swing dancing and, and stuff. And, and we still keep in contact today. It's really funny, but, um, uh, but yeah, that was, that was the entry point. And then, and then eventually, dancing became kind of like the new identity. And, and then they get, you know, 99 is when I got the job at Arthur Murray and, and then like, you know, the rest is history. So I want to get back up to today. So you, in that process, so 99, you started it. And then you have since, I truncated your bio a lot, folks, he's got a lot of success. And so you have helped sort of rehab a lot of businesses in that same space and shown them how to become profitable. Am I overly summarizing what you've done? No, no, yeah. So, so much of what we do, because of the nature of and the proximity of of what we do on dance lessons, is that you know our customer service desk or our help desk, I always like to say, is like is in the space of a dance frame, right? So we have to be really engaged. Like it's not that kind of service where you're you're just kind of turning it on long enough to like wait a table, or you're turning it on long enough just to get somebody away from from your help desk, and and it has that kind of that 
that that little sprinkling of you know like of of silent judgment or something like that you know and and so um, what so never it, like yeah right and, and so you know um, this is coming from a guy I mean my first my first real job I worked for my mom my mom is a small business owner and I got I worked for her and I I was a total <laughs> I was a I was a loophole for her business. You know, I was, I, I'm sure I was just ruining things, you know, just, <laughs> you know, letting my personality get, a, get ahead of like profitability and stuff. But yeah, so with, with Arthur Murray, the, um, by 2003, my, my, my wife and I, or my girlfriend at the time and dance partner, Daisy, we took over the Hayward location, which was kind of trending. She had kind of got it. She had resuscitated the school. The, the owner needed to retire and, and he wanted to pass it. He was either going to close it or he was going to he was going to hand it off to Daisy, and so 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 Daisy said, you know, I'll do it, and then I came over, and and then we we, we had started in separate studios, and and then I came over to work with her, and then we just it was like one of those spirit and guts kind of kinds of things to kind of build that school up. And what's funny is it was the first Arthur Murray studio on the West Coast to ever break like a million dollars in in um, in gross. Damn. Right? And, um, and what was crazy was about the same time, maybe it was 2004, 2005, Arthur Murray opened locations in Japan. And in Japan, you know, real estate, I mean, commercial real estate is just insane. Like there's, you know, everything is like a little hole in the wall space. And so those, the studio owners there said, well, we can't ever be, you know, have a lot of profit because we don't have enough space. Like we need a bigger studio, it needs to be beautiful. And so then Arthur Murray International this is kind of like a slap in the face and a wonderful compliment at the same time. They said, well, then we're going to send you out to Arthur Murray and Hayward because our studio was a total, like it was it, 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 like there's homeless people sleeping right on our, on our doorstep. And, and, and the studio itself was just butt ugly. <laughs> so, but we turned it into this really wonderful place. And, um, and so they, they flew the Arthur Murray franchisees from Japan out to come and see. They were going to come and just visit for an hour. They stayed for like nine hours. We weren't even planning on having them there. And they kept, through the interpreter, they kept saying, can you take us to the million dollar studio? As they're like going through our kind of junky, you know. <laughs> they're like, this studio. isn't it. <laughs> this, I'm sure this is just the doormat to the million dollar studio. And, and so, um, so we're like, no, this is it. And they kept like, and it was almost like they kept asking the question like, Maybe that was just American sarcasm or something, but like they kept asking the question through the course of the day. And one of our mentors who passed away a couple of years ago, his name is Jack DeBev, and he used to always tell us, he said, you know, it's not the place, it's the people. And he just kept reminding us of that. It's not the place, it's the people. And then when he would go and travel as a consultant to give meetings, um, I remember one day he came to our studio and he said, I have renamed my, my meeting on it's not the place, it's the people. And I now just call that the Hayward meeting. Oh. And and we were like, oh man, you know. And, and when your mentor says something like that to you, it's just like it gives you goosebumps. Yeah. Stuff, so. Oh, how lovely. Okay. Well, I just wanted to dive in because I thought that was such an interesting. I don't know. It's just an interesting story. And we. It's such a opening a dance studio is such a specific niche kind of market, but it is. Where and we'll get into it in the next section. Like it is. It informs so many other things. And I'm very curious. Don't answer this now. But I'm very curious yeah. about like how a dancer's mentality can get you to where you got. So we're gonna get there. All right, folks. Yeah. We hope you enjoyed your apps. We're gonna move on to the entrees after a quick break. All right, we are back. And now it is time for the entrees. Okay, Chris, 
you had mentioned this in the previous section, but we're going to get into it. Your first job ever was working for your mom. Yeah. So what did, what'd you do? I was, um, (laughs) she called me, she's like, you're going to be my clerk. (laughs) So that was my official title. And really what it was is I was, it was, I guess it was like, we did like flyer campaigns and I would just fold papers, like mailers and things like that. And, um, send out like new student packets. Everything was done by mail at the time. This was this, gosh, this was in the, gosh, this was like in the late eighties. And so I was, uh, I, I was maybe 12 or 13 and, and uh, my mom was so, so funny. I look at all these things that was like, the writing was on the wall, Chris Lanham. You should have just paid attention a little bit to some of the social cues. But my mom kept encouraging me to try and get a job at like McDonald's. And so to the point where she, she drove me to get an interview at this McDonald's by our house and I was 13. I was like, I don't know if I'm old enough to work at McDonald's. And she's like, no, it's going to be fine. It'll, be, it'll look great on your, your, your resume to say that you've worked at McDonald's. And really what I feel like she was saying was, I, I don't want you to work for me anymore. But she didn't really say that. But uh, so she takes me to this McDonald's. I sit down for this interview. They, they go through this interview and they say, and you're how old? And I was like, I'm 13. And they said, I'm sorry, we can't hire you. You, you, you need to be at least 14 years old. And I was like, okay. And, um, and then she gets in the car and this is like how my mom is wired. She goes, every McDonald's is owned by different people. And so even though this McDonald's can't hire you, that doesn't mean this other McDonald's isn't gonna hire you. So she drives me, we set up an appointment and drives me to a McDonald's a mile in the opposite direction. And I go in and I sit down for my interview and the exact same guy comes out to greet me. <laughs> he says, uh, Mr. Lynham, Nice to see you again. Yeah, it's the same rules here. Um, and so, um, so that was my first attempt. So McDonald's, if you're listening, I really worked extra hard to try and work for you. Um, and got rejected but, uh, over and over. So rude. Yeah, two times in the same week by the same guy. <laughs> but um, yeah, but eventually I ended up becoming a, um, a music teacher for my mom. So I was, uh, when I was a freshman in high school, I taught trumpet um, for a summer. Um, and this was all while my mom's business was inside our home. And so, so my trumpet lessons were in our garage by our washer and dryer. And I taught a poor young kid that thought I would be a good teacher. Wait, I want to go back. So what did your mom actually do? Was she, uh, was teaching her sort of main business? Cause when you said you were folding the flyers, that was for teaching. Yeah. So my mom started a music school and, um, and so that school started in our living room and then uh, it gradually expanded. And then we, um, when we moved, when, when my parents split up and, and we got a different house and, and then she created this music room out of this like living room. And that became like this room where she did all of her lessons. So we kind of, she kind of expanded there. And then we had this, this office that was like dedicated just for um, her business is called the Music Place for Children. And, um, and then our waiting room was our regular family room for us as kids. And, um, and then our, our washer and dryer were in the garage where I taught trumpet lessons. And, um, and the scary thing was as I got older and we were still, she was still teaching out of the house, um, you know, you take a shower and run downstairs to go grab a towel out of the dryer. And then you go into this waiting room on accident where all these moms are waiting for their kids. And, and you're a 14 year old boy, you know, with all the hormones walking through there with, you know, um, and so that was, that was definitely, we had to, we had to understand kind of a, a lot about service at that point that when people are in our home and it was just, we were, it, it was just something we were so adjusted to, but when people were in our home, we, we knew we couldn't interrupt our mom's lessons. We had to be really self-reliant. 
we had to make sure that if we were gonna walk into our own kitchen or family room, that we had to be on, like we had to greet people and say hello. And we couldn't be like, what are you doing in here? You know, <laughs> but, but that was that was like our main kind of hangout to watch TV and stuff. So we had to like postpone all of those things until until business was done. And I look back at those times where I just accepted that like every kid had that. And it was so unique, you know, when I look back on it. Sure. And was this like a Lynham family sort of passed down business or did your mom just sort of come into music? What was her like? What got her doing that? Yeah, so she was, um, she's a super smart person. She, um, she had like a full ride to, you know, Pepperdine and, you know, all these, you know, she had a really bright, like academic future. And then she just felt like she had this calling, you know, she kind of had this sort of road to Damascus moment where she decided like she, you know, someone um, at her church told her, said, I have this vision for you that you are going to be on the floor and you're going to be sharing your heart and your gift of music with children. Wow. And and then she literally like felt like she was feeling the same thing and then and then she kind of like abandoned everything and took this path and she started teaching she was teaching music for other people so um so for a while when my parents first split up we didn't have a car and um we used to have to get all of I'm the oldest of four so we had to get everybody into like a stroller and run down this hill and get to this bus stop so we could catch the bus and go across town so my mom could teach piano lessons. But she's always been like a multi-instrument, um, you know, talent. And so, um, and then she started her own business. And then now it's the largest, I, I believe it's the largest private dance studio in all of California. And now she's got, you know, regular commercial locations. And and I really believe like it could be a, it could be a franchise if, you know, if she wanted it to be. and. Um, and and so we've had the, the conversation about who's going to kind of take the take the keys to the to the family business, but um, but she definitely started from scratch. She's a she's a virtuoso in terms of just her vision and her heart for kids, and um, she developed a, a curriculum that that really helps helps kids and that have no musical background and and helps kind of assess like how they can get started. And then um, and then this the last couple of years. She started to branch out to music therapy and um, for for even for special needs um, oh. kids, and it was interesting because she was having this conversation with me, kind of as a peer, which is really weird, you know. But as a fellow business owner, she's like, "I, I'm wondering if I need to make this investment into like a full time music therapist." And and she was telling my wife and I about it, and we were like, "That sounds wonderful," you know. And so and now a couple of years later, she's like, "I can't find enough music therapists because they're so." hard to get and we're so booked up and we need like three or four more. And so now that's become this really wonderful new kind of addition to, that she wasn't even expecting. But, um, oh, I but love it's it. really great. You know, all of us have worked in some capacity for our mom and, and it's, it's neat to be able to, to kind of have that shared history together. Well, and it's, it's sort of interesting. It makes me understand why you have more of a positive perspective on customer service because there's an attachment to, you grew up sort of seeing how that fed your family and kept a roof over your head. And it's sort of, if there's a historical emotional attachment, I could see that you wouldn't be so concerned with like flipping a table and like making sure you were making all the tips that you were, you know, there's some emotional component to it, which now it makes sense. See audience, he grew up in it. That's why it's working out. <laughs> okay. So I was, I will tell you though, I was a bus boy at a pizza place. My first really official job, I worked at this really cool pizza place that was like a sports bar. And here's the thing. I was so green and new. Um, I, my goal, this is like, this is where your 15 year old goals are a lot different, but 
I was aspiring to just make pizzas and not to bust tables. Mm. Um, but we all played um, uh, video games after work. We had them inside the pizza place. And so every time there would be money on the table when I'd go to bust the table, I was like, wow, I got a tip. And so I would put the money in my pocket and then I was wiping the tables down and, and I thought I was doing such an, a, a wonderful job, like clearing all the stuff out. And then I overheard the bartender having this really like heated conversation with the owner of this pizza place. And he's like, I don't know what the deal is. Like they used to tip me all the time. And I'm like, hmm, hmm, I'm gonna go over here and wipe these tables. And here I was, I had all of the money for this bartender that, <laughs> that I was putting in my pocket thinking I was doing a magnificent busing job. That's um, hilarious. It was really, yeah. So I, I was it. I was very new to the food service world, but that was definitely a rite of passage for sure. Sure it is. Did you end up giving the tips back to the bartender? Were you just like, well, lesson learned, gotta go. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I was just like, what's that over there? You know, oh, I'm gonna go play Street Fighter. <laughs> I have so many quarters, this is crazy. Uh, <laughs> it's nuts. How many customer service jobs have you had total? Gosh, that's a good question. I, well, let's see. I went from, I think I've only had, well, if I count my mom's, I, I worked my mom on and off like at different times in my life. So, so I would count that as one job. So I, outside of Arthur Murray, I've had three customer service jobs. Yeah, so I went pizza place. I got a job. I had this, I had, <laughs> this is now listeners. Don't ever trade your soul or happiness for a couple extra bucks because I had to learn that the hard way. I got a job at a, a wood shop um, right out of high school. And I did one of those things. We had this guy that came in to give us career advice as, to the, all the seniors in high school. And he was a successful businessman. And he was my assistant basketball coach. And, and he said, you need to offer that you will work for free if they're not willing to hire you. And then see if you could work for free and then they'll give you the job and that'll show them like what you're made of. And so I was like, well, I'll try that. And so he's like, I got this job lined up for you at this, you know, and it's a, it's a colleague of mine. And so I went and I did the interview and I said, I'll even work for free if, if, if you're willing to take a chance on me. Oh, and your so heart. This is, yeah, this is so old school, right? So, um, so this, <laughs> it was this, they made these closet and garage organizers and, um, and so the guy was like, okay. And then they only had me work for free for one day. They're like, we'll hire you. And so, so I work and, and now I'm making like $2 more than minimum wage at the time, which is where like everybody else is kind of making. And I'm thinking like, man, I am rolling in, in the bucks. And I was like telling all my friends and I was like, I'm going to get a great workout because I'm going to be carrying wood all day. And they're like, wait, what? And, and so, and then I go into this place and I'm a really social person. I go into this wood shop and every, my supervisor hands me a pair of earplugs and a mask, kind of like what we're all wearing today. And, um, and that's what we had to, we had to have earplugs in and a mask all the time um, because this, they have so much sawdust in the air and the, and the saws are going nonstop. And the guy that ran the saw was actually deaf, so he didn't have to wear earplugs. <laughs> but um, yeah, but so, and then I was the person that put all of that kind of plastic edging on all of this, um, all this wood for these garage and closet organizers. And it was just a nightmare. I was like, I will take, I will take no money to just be at the mall. Like just put me in a place where I can talk to people. And you know, my only highlight of the day, you know, or maybe the week would be like, if I got a, a chance to like drive the forklift or something, but. 
Um, but eventually that, that job was like, I'm, 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 I'm done, I gotta get out of here. And so I ended up getting a job at Tower Records, super old school, but um, so I was at Tower Records and, um, and then I got, I got promoted to being a supervisor, which was really cool. I was an 18 year old kid with the keys to like a multi-million dollar <laughs> location. <laughs> that seems risky. Such a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I yeah, mean, right. A little, a little sus. So, um, <laughs> um, so that was, that was definitely very interesting, but I had a lot of great times there. And, um, and then, and then bounced around, got some temp jobs. And, um, and then I got a, I had another kind of warehouse job, which was just comically bad. It was just as bad as the, um, as that garage organizer place. And then I, that was the only job I've ever walked out of. And I was so worried about my, my resume and what that would say about me, but they called me and they called me and they called me. And I was like, I am just not going back. And then, so then I felt like wherever I go next, I have to be like the Vikings and I'm gonna, I'm gonna land on the island of my next job and I'm gonna burn the boats so I can't escape. <laughs> and, um, and so that way I can maybe get a good, like maybe two, three years going um, so that way it maybe covers up the fact that I walked out of this job at my last one for my resume. And what was the subsequent job? Was it Arthur Murray or was it something else? It was Arthur Murray. Well, look yeah, at that. It was Arthur Murray. <laughs> you really yeah. burnt that boat. <laughs> I burnt it. I burnt it to a crisp. And what's funny is, um, you remember that scene in Christmas Vacation where Chevy Chase gets that, that bonus? Yeah. He's thinking it's going to be the money for the pool. I had the exact same scenario. So at <laughs> this warehouse job, they saw that I was pretty good with computers and so instead of running around in this freezing cold warehouse to like pick orders and it was a logistics company and, and put stuff on pallets and ship it out. Um, and you're kind of working up a sweat and you, your, your body heat's going. Once they saw that I was decent on the computer, they, they put me at a desk in the middle of a freezing cold warehouse. So I felt like I was a security guard. It's like some Siberian prison or something. Oh. So I was sitting there and you could see, I could see my breath and I'm trying to type and my hands are, are shaking. And then they did Christmas bonuses and they go around and, and I'm expecting them to like, you know, they're, they're kind of going from one person to the next and they're handing envelopes over and they're handing envelopes over and they're like, and, and then, you're like, here it comes. You know, we, and, and I'm like, here comes the payday. And they hand me my envelope and I open it up and it was a $15 gift certificate to the honey baked ham store. No, 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 no. <laughs> How hot were you when you got that? And that was that was the moment. I was like, I'm out, I'm out. I, <laughs> I don't I want your ham. <laughs> I'm gonna take that ham and I'm gonna throw it in your face. But uh, yeah. <laughs> You're like, my fingers don't work. They've frozen off and I get a ham instead. I'm not here for this. <laughs> so did you, did you walk out in a huff? Were you literally in that moment? You were like, I'm out, I, out. I, no, in my mind, I did that. I didn't do that. <laughs> um, I just didn't show up the next day. And then my supervisor called and my buddies. I had some great friends there. But um, in fact, my friend Brian, who I mentioned earlier, was the one that got me the job. And uh, and he was the one that kind of got me into swing dancing. But we were we worked together. And so we had a great time together. Um, so the people were really cool. But the, just the, the circumstances were just, you know, it just wasn't, it didn't feel right. Like I was making money, but I just it was just so like energy depleting and I was freezing cold all the time. And, you know, I felt like a, you know, you know, like, and, and everyone sort of approached it. Like, what's your, what's your deal? Why are you, why are you so cold? What's your problem? I was like, dude, you are walking around <laughs> yeah. and running and yeah, running up a ladder and picking orders out and, you know, and, um, and so I was, you know, they called me and they left me all these messages and I was like, I'm done. You know, I can't do it. Good for you. 
Okay. So of all of those customer service jobs, and it's probably obvious what the answer is, but which was your favorite besides working for your mom? Cause obviously you love your mom a ton. I mean, for of sure. course. I, I mean, I think, gosh, I think that I, if I, oh God, I don't know it. I mean, my, my favorite, obviously, I mean, Arthur Murray has always been like my, it's my longest tenured one, but I, I feel like like the, the trace elements, when I look back on like, you know, they say like you have to, sometimes you have to run into a tree before you learn how to like avoid the tree in terms of like a learning lesson. Yeah. And so when I think of like the running into the tree moments, I think Tower Records, it was great and horrible. And I look back on some of the lessons that I learned and I, and I'm embarrassed at some of the things that I had to run into. And I, I worked so hard to get this promotion by being great at the register and greeting people and doing all these things and trying to show my personality and be really fast and accurate with my count at the end of the day. But I was trying to be really helpful because I thought that it was going to earn me this promotion. And part of the reason why I wanted the promotion, and this is just like what, what motivates an 18-year-old basketball player, is I knew that everyone that got a promotion got this free lunch at this really <laughs> cool Chinese restaurant that was in our, our shopping center. And, uh, and, so, and, so the, and then the, the manager of, the, of the, the GM at the store would take you to, to this place. And I just like, it, it fulfilled all these really these cool kind of movie moment fantasies in my mind. And so I was like, oh, I want to get that promotion. And so when I finally got it, then I, I, I realized looking back, I was a really crappy supervisor. Like I wasn't, I did enough to earn the promotion, but I didn't really do anything to, to be of service to people after that. And so I was like one of those, I look back on those times as kind of, I was a, I was a title-based leader, but I wasn't really an influence-based leader. And so because of that, like I, um, I ended up getting demoted back to register and humble pie. So, <laughs> it was so humbling and it was so, you know, guys that I was kind of like lording over ended up getting bumped up to my old position. And so then, then those guys were like, you know, oh, here, you know, it's payback time, buddy, you know? And, <laughs> and so, you know, and then they started like cutting my hours and, and, and I just got more and more kind of bitter and sour. And, and, you know, if, if you remember the days of Tower Records, every single employee there sort of seemed like this elitist music fan, almost like Jack Black in um, High Fidelity or something. hundred percent. And yeah. And I think that part of it too, is that, you know, you know, unfortunately you, you sort of develop, I don't think you develop bitterness all in like one big dollop. You know, I think that it's just this gradual thing over time, almost like the pearl inside an oyster, you know, mm -hmm. it just takes time and it sort of accrues and it has these moments where you don't really communicate through some of that stuff. And, and like, you really are going to have this nice heart to heart with somebody that works at a music store. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe, you don't know, it's customer service. It's an op It's an option. Yeah, for sure. So would that then also qualify as your least favorite job or what would be your least favorite of the mix? Yeah, I think customer service wise, like my, my least favorite, I, I mean, I, I feel like I can always find like the bright side, you know, but oh, you know what? There was one more job that I just remembered while we're talking about Tower Records in between. I so I was a DJ for through high school and through the beginning of college. And so I, I love my one of my other kind of passions was to maybe get a job on like a radio show. And um, and I use, you know, vinyl and turntables, the whole nine yards. I used to sell mixtapes to my friends. And, Hell yeah. Um, and yeah, it was awesome. Um, and then we we cornered my friends and I started a business in high school and we 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 designed flyers and we threw house parties because we went to a private school so we didn't have dances and so so for like a hundred bucks we would put this full service 
party together for people and we lost money every single time <laughs> because we spent all of it on records, you know? Of course. <laughs> so, um, but it was, it, was, it was so awesome. But where, the, the record shop where I used to buy all my vinyl, they had turntables. Like they, they had a guy, the, the manager would DJ and would play stuff for people that they wanted, if they wanted to listen to music before they bought it. And I used to get all my records there and, and I kept going in there thinking like, man, I would love to get that job as the DJ of the store you know, and just like spin music and help people out. And so I talked to this guy, I had such a great rapport with him and he would give me like promotional copies of records and stuff because I was such a great customer. And then I was like, hey, what do you think about me working here? And maybe maybe running the, the ones and twos. And he's <laughs> like, I think that's great. And so I ended up leaving Tower Records and I was like, fine, I'm out of here, you know? And I they'd cut my hours down so much. So I got this job at this other record shop. With, I don't know if I should keep them anonymous or not. They're called Star Records in East San Jose. Um, so I get this job at Star Records. And then I'm thinking I'm going to be the DJ. And then I'm just going right back to doing the same thing I was doing at Tower Records. <laughs> You're like, hell and no. <laughs> exactly. And so that was, to me, that was the, that was the bitterest kind of pill to swallow. And, um, and so that was just an, you know... The, the guy that, you know, they say you should never like really get to know your heroes and stuff because you don't want to see like what's behind the curtain. So this guy that I had really held on this pedestal that was the manager of the shop, you know, working for him was so much different than just being an, you know, like, you know, a, a consumer at his, at his store. And so, so that became kind of a bummer because then I sort of like, you know, stripped, stripped the screws off of that relationship. And, um, and so then I could never go back there and buy records either because I was like, I, I can't work here anymore. How long did you last so there? That, that was your least favorite, I assume. That's my least favorite. So Star Records was my least favorite. It just, I thought I was getting one thing and then the rug got pulled out for me, so. That doesn't feel great. And how long did you work there? That was probably maybe a stint of like a year before Shit. I got that uh, warehouse job, so. Oh, you were there yeah. a minute. That's a long time. Yeah. I think what was keeping me there was literally the employee discount because I was still DJing a lot and I wanted to be able to get, you know, and so we would get, um, it was cool. Like they would have people come in and um, sometimes some, some musical artists would come in and sign autographs and stuff. So I got a chance to meet, you know, some different musical artists and rappers and stuff like that. And so that was like really cool, but that was the only thing really keeping me there was just the, the employee discount on vinyl and the occasional rapper. That would show up. So. <laughs> and you're like, it's not worth it, but I'm sticking it out. Okay. Yeah, yeah. What's the weirdest thing you've been asked to do whilst on the clock? Oh, okay. All right. This is easy. So when <laughs> I was the bus boy at that pizza place, there would be, you know, large groups of people there to watch Monday Night Football or something. And, you know, keep in mind, I'm like maybe a sophomore in high school <laughs> and, and this, and also desperate for money. Like it was my first job where I, like I said, like I loved, you know, playing video games was everything. And a lot of it was arcade games and stuff like that. And so we always would have tournaments after work. And, and so I needed to have some like pocket money. And so this lady, I'm, I'm busting this table and this lady is totally drunk. And she's with this big group of people. And she goes, she's holding up a dollar. She's like, she's like, I'm gonna give you this dollar, but you gotta do a little dance for me. No, 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 and, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, and so, and and now everything in my adult mind says you should have reported her to, you know, <laughs> you know, right? Um, it would be part of like a movement or something. Like you shouldn't be, you know, <laughs> abusing these young children. And and but my 15 year old self said, deal. <laughs> so so I did 
a provocative dance in front of a table of people at a sports bar pizza place oh and put the dollar bill no, you down the no, front you of my belt. No, no, yeah. no, yeah. no, 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 no. And I was gyrating and doing all this stuff as a 15-year-old. And I don't know how that woman has lived her life since. Um, oh, oh. Maybe, maybe in, in a very a specific way. Like you're you're having teenagers dance for cash. Um, That's right. You're making some choices. That's a, that's a series that, of choices. <laughs> that sounds like something that's on the dark web. You know, it, so. it for sure is. <laughs> Thank God that was pre, you know, social media so that there's not video of you doing that. But exactly. Actually, <laughs> I would I would pay to watch that video. I think that <laughs> you know what? It was a precursor to your dancing. So, you know, it. it's it's bold. It was a choice. Well done, you. <laughs> okay, yeah. I ha- earned one American dollar. One and that <laughs> single, not multiple, folks. One, one dollar. Okay. Right. Was there an incident that where they, uh, like, a customer would ask to speak to the manager? So we know the bartender when you were pulling full thievery, the bartender obviously spoke to a manager. But was there an incident where a customer, or even at Arthur Murray, where because you're the you're as high up as it gets, so was there uh, something that happened where they were like, I'm, I want to talk to your boss. Oh man. Okay. There was an Arthur Murray moment. That was a really, my first, I mean, everything about Arthur Murray was so great in the beginning. I mean, it was dancing. It was, it was me kind of discovering this passion that I never really knew that I, I would have. And, um, but my first kind of talking to moment was this big kind of rip the bandaid off moment that kind of brought up a lot of the, those feelings from some of those other jobs. And, um, we went, it was my very first big dance competition. And one of the students there, we flew to Atlanta for this big Arthur Murray, it's called the Superam. It's like the Arthur Murray Championships for students and for teachers and stuff. And, um, and it was this wonderful opportunity and, and I had a student going and, and, and my boss is kind of training us on the fly and it's my very first time in an environment like that. And I'm up until this point, I feel like I've followed everything to the letter of the law. I wanted to be employee number one, like just, you know, just the ambassador for our studio. And this student that my boss was taking, she ends up having some kind of episode and she collapses on one of the first nights and they have to take her to the emergency room. And I'm not sure what exactly took place, if it was some kind of bad medication or if it was some kind of exhaustion or something, but she goes to the emergency room, she does, they do a battery of tests, my boss goes with her, like thinking about service, he goes with her and stays in the emergency room because because her husband isn't even there because she's going to this dance competition. So he's over there and then he's up the next morning, even though he's been up all night, he's up the next morning when to, to supervise us with our students at this dance competition. And I look back on that and Bobby Gonzalez, you are a saint. So this student ends up kind of going through, she recovers, she comes to the competition, she ends up dancing on the last day. In the process, I start to feel a little under the weather. And so, so through the course of the competition, my demeanor and my attitude started to kind of really sort of become more self-serving. So I was feeling like my throat's a little sore and, and the student who just came out of the emergency room at Arthur Murray events too, it's super rowdy, it's fun, it makes it safe for everybody to feel like they're being supported. And it's almost like going to like a, a sporting event, like going to a football game, everyone's cheering and stuff. And here I was sitting at a table with my arms crossed with like a coat on and drinking tea and not cheering for anybody. And so the student says to me, don't you think that you should be cheering? And then my reflexive response is, well, I'm sick. And it was the student trying to like course correct for me. 
And I took offense to that. And then some other things happened. We, you know, magically, I wasn't too sick for the after party with all the professionals. I <laughs> go to this after party. How did that happen? And, <laughs> oh, and it's weird. It's so weird. So I go, to, I go to this after party on Saturday night. And then Sunday morning at breakfast, I show up to breakfast. I'm so enthused. I'm dancing all night, having a great time. And the same student says, how'd you enjoy the party last night? <laughs> and, and so then I... I start gushing. I'm like, oh my gosh, it was wonderful. I was dancing with this person and this person and this person. And I didn't realize every single response I was just nailing and I was constructing my own coffin back then. And, um, and so that was, uh, so then when I get back from the competition, a couple of days go by and, um, and then the owner of my studio and my boss said that they needed to have a meeting with me. And that was so, it was weird. I felt like, you know, it would almost be like if, you know, if you got a job at Disneyland and then suddenly they said, you know, there's a really good chance that we're going to ship you out of here and we're going to have you working at Magic Mountain next week. You know, like, oh, wow, it was, it was that serious. It, was, it felt like that. It wasn't looking back on it. It wasn't that serious. But what they said was, you know, this is this can never happen again. And and your behavior is the problem. And what I took that as was I kind of deflected that. I always think of like Wonder, Wonder Woman old school with like the bracelets and stuff. I deflected all of that stuff and I just focused on how dare that student complain about a professional like me. And so that was a moment where I realized I had to keep running into that tree until I could avoid it. And the longer that I took the approach of blaming the student, I was like postponing the learning lesson. And, mm. um, and so unfortunately, I just felt hurt having that conversation instead of feeling like informed and trained. I didn't take any training from that conversation. I just felt threatened. And, um, and so it kind of, it, I'm sure it set me back a little bit, but you know, it also kind of set things up for when I finally like learned the importance of personal accountability and stuff like that. And then, you know, that kind of changed, but that was one of those moments. I wish I could have that big old do over on that one. I'm just super impressed with how much accountability you're willing to take on a recorded piece of part of your press tour to say, listen, here are the things I did wrong. I really respect that because that is part of the whole gig with customer service is that it is, I mean, now I'm not saying this to be a, a wise ass, but it is a dance. And so if there is a piece of you that is willing to take accountability, because it can't always be the customer or it can't always be the student, or it can't always be you as the, you know, the arbiter of the experience. So it's an interesting it's an interesting perspective that you have that is super healthy of what's my part, what can I take ownership of? Okay, yep, that was mine, even if it took you longer to, to learn. And that's clearly why your businesses are so successful because not everybody wants to be wrong 100% of the time. I would I would venture or I'd argue that nobody wants to be wrong 100% of the time. So it's pretty impressive. For sure. Uh, yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and that that you've kind of summed up like how to get better at ballroom dancing by saying that because you can always blame your partner. Like it's your dance partner is is your your the only other person in the room when you're practicing usually, you know. And so it's always easiest to kind of look outside of your side of the dance frame. And and so I did that with my wife while we were while we were you know we had a competitive dance career for like ten years and 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 I made that like my mission was to to teach her how to be a better partner for me. And I learned I, I ended up picking up a book. John G. Miller wrote this book called The QBQ. It's the question behind the question. And I picked it up on a layover on, a way, on my way to a speaking engagement for Arthur Murray. And I was in Vegas and I stopped at this, you know, newsstand shop or something. And I picked up a book just to kind of keep my, myself active on the, on the flight. And um, I picked it up and I read it. And it was 
you know, you have those moments like that, <laughs> that scene in The Godfather where Michael Corleone, they say he's like thunderstruck or something when he finally <laughs> sees that girl Apollonia, you know, and th- that was my thunderstruck moment. Like it was, it, it was so incredibly, it, it was almost like a physical like experience. Like I didn't realize just how much weight I had been carrying of blame. Wow. And, um, and this book was all about, are you somebody who's, you know, are you, are you going to be the person that blames everybody else? Or are you going to find like what you could have controlled? And when you relinquish control, you're now playing the victim card. And, um, and so what I realized was I was doing that with my wife and my wife was like so great about it. Like she would, I'd say like, you need to get this better. And she'd be like, okay. You know, and, and she would, she would improve. And what was funny was I would like judges at competitions would come up and they'd say, God, your girlfriend's legs and feet, they're gorgeous. Daisy is such a great dancer. And then that would be the end of the conversation. Like you'd expect <laughs> them to say something else. <laughs> Honoring your like feet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'm like, what about, isn't there something else you want to bring up? And, <laughs> and, um, and so after I read this book, it was crazy because what I decided was anything that Daisy had to say about my dancing that I needed to get better at. I was just going to agree and work on it. And the way that I looked at it was, what's the worst that can happen? Is I could be a better dancer because of it. And the the ripple effect is we're gonna have a better, more productive practice. And so the moment that that happened, I I always tell people that book, The QBQ, is the only kind of nonfiction business title that can make you a better dancer. Because you're gonna stop blaming all these people that aren't really responsible for your success. And I feel like had that not happened, I, I honestly believe that I probably would have run like every factor of our relationship, whether it's the business partnership, whether it's the marriage partnership or the dance partnership, I would have run all of that into the ground if I kept on that same trajectory. Super humble and honest. I appreciate that take. Okay. I want to be cognizant of time because sorry, audience, we're not going to get through all of our normal questions, but I have so many other questions for him. So we have to keep it moving. But the last question in this section, can you give me either the archetype of the worst customer you can think of? You're such a positive person. I doubt you'll be able to come up with this, but, or an incident where you were like, and that customer can never come back. I would be thrilled if I never had to see this person again. Oh man, gosh. I think, yeah, I, I think there's always going to be a point where there's a customer that is just unreasonable, you know, to a point where they've been, they've been wronged or offended or, or something, you know, and then they've, they've sort of set themselves on the path of, now I'm going to punish you for how you've made me feel, right? And so they sort of weaponize the experience that they've had. And then they want, and, and, and I think that's where you know, like, you know, you know, there can be, you know, like we said, like developing like the pearl of, you know, of a bad, of a bad experience. And I think when people get to a point where they personally want to attack, you know, then that's something too, we have to look at that through like the, the like the lens of like a postmortem or like a, or, or like a, a crime scene detective. And like, what were the, what were the trace elements that kind of, you know, the DNA evidence of where things could have gone gone wrong. We had this one situation that, well, there's two two things that immediately come to mind. First one is we had this uh, Yelp review that came in from from somebody that she just, it was a, a one star, it came to my inbox. I, I read this review and I'm like, oh my God. And it was, it was somebody that was getting ready for their wedding. They wanted to have wedding dance lessons. They had contacted us and we didn't contact them back. And so they had never taken a lesson with us, but they gave us a one-star review. 
and 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 she went through this entire like litany of of where we dropped the ball and how unprofessional could we be and all these things and just it, it was like you know it, it was devastating to read that around the same time i had read there's a book called hug your haters by jay bear and jay is like a a masterful he does a masterful job with this book and it's all about that feedback even if it's negative feedback is is positive because now they're not just leaving but they're telling you how they they wish they could have been served in the process so you know if you think about it like what's the worst kind of you know husband is is not the guy that says i want a divorce but it's the guy that leaves in the middle of the night and doesn't say anything right and so Think about how many clients we lose and they leave in the middle of the night, so to speak, versus the ones that complain are actually giving you an opportunity to maybe fix it. And we, and when we treat that, rather than treating that as like a personal attack, you know, in his book, it's all about, we treat that as that's their first means of communication is just to let you know there was a problem. And if you can take your personal feelings out of it, you can actually come up with a productive solution. So I kind of took everything from that book and I responded to this, this, this woman and I said, you know, we completely dropped the ball and I am, I am so sorry to hear that we couldn't help you for your wedding dance, but that doesn't mean that we can't help you for dancing in your marriage. Oh, and I would I'm love cry. to be I'm able to cry. <laughs> yeah. So I said, you know, I'd love to be able to make it up to you and, and, and to, to give you some salsa lessons on the house and have you and your new husband come in and, and, you know, we, you know, we were changing something, but there's no excuse, but our, you know, something was happening behind the scenes with our website. And, and so we didn't get the, the form that was submitted, but that's no excuse for us dropping the ball. And so everything was me like falling on the sword. And what was so crazy is that a, about a week later, I called to the, to the location where this happened and they said, did you read the review? And I was like, well, yeah, I read the review. Like it's, it's a one-star review, it's a bummer. And they said, no, look at it now. And I go on there and this lady changed it from a one star to a five star review. I'm crying. I can't deal with this. <laughs> it was crazy. Oh my gosh. And, and she and here's the crazy thing is that this lady, they had the worst luck with every one of their wedding vendors. And and I don't know if it she just maybe her spam blocker was on setting to high or something, but none of the photographers, nobody got back to her. She said this was the first business that that actually took the time to apologize and to get back to us. And we have never taken any lesson there, but we know exactly where we're gonna take lessons the moment that we want to. Oh my and so gosh. Yeah, it was it was unreal. But I, I think that, you know, I look at everything like if I'm a doctor and somebody dies on the operating table, regardless of the condition, I have to look at it like, what could we have done better? You know, if if I'm a if I'm a, a you know an investigator and someone you know someone dies in some sort of murder or something like, what could I have done to prevent this? Like, what could I have done to solve this case faster? And everything, if I always feel like there's always going to be something, whether it's you know whether it's a learning lesson or if it's you know if it's just one of those things where like it's going to maybe raise our you know awareness of that scenario the next time. You know, there's so many so many situations. I mean, we're running into the same people all the time, but we have to be better people to be able to receive that. And I think when it comes to those bad customer experiences, you can't fall on the sword by just pricking your finger. You know, you have to like fall on the sword completely. And, um, and when you do that, you now have kind of made yourself humble and you've made yourself safe. And, and it sounds like you're willing to talk through a solution versus if, if your first reflexive response is just to fight back.
Wow, Chris, you should write a book. You got a lot of gems. These are really great. I'm super impressed. <laughs> All right. Well, folks. Maybe I'll do it one day. Yeah, someday. Uh, now we're going to move on to the good stuff. We hope you saved room for dessert. Now, here's the thing. Chris has been so positive this whole time that even the worst customer question was made desserty. So basically, you've been eating sugar this whole podcast. Well done, everybody. But... Short of what you've already shared, what was the nicest thing a customer has done for you whilst you were working? Oh, wow. Um, so I had this, this student who she came in, was super nervous, so shy, like in a severe sort of way. And um, the way that she walked through the door would be, imagine like if you were going to walk, um, like maybe you were a peasant in like the, in, in you know, let's say in, in the Renaissance or something, you're a peasant and you're approaching like the king or the queen. Like that was like her body language. And um, and so uh, she had this, this demeanor and she was so apologetic and I was talking to her. And when I asked her about why she was taking dance lessons and what was her interest, she was telling me that she was a stay-at-home mom, but her husband worked six months out of the year in Asia. And, um, and so she was managing the books and she was managing the kids and doing everything. And then she said, well, my husband is a good dancer, and so I need to be a good dancer. And I was like, well, tell me about that. Oh, and I said, how long have you been wanting to, to take dance lessons? She said, well, probably for about 17 years. And I was like, well, 17, that's so specific. How come? She said, well, he's been at this company for about 17 years, and that's about how long we've been married. And every year they have a Christmas party, and he loves to dance. And I was like, oh, great. So he gets you on the dance floor. And she says, well, no, she, he dances with other ladies in his office, and then she says, but, you know, but that's okay. Like I can, you know, I'm fine. I want him to have a good time. And so I'm thinking there, wait a second, what? You know, I was thinking of like Batman Begins, you know, you're you know, like Christian Bale's voice. And I was like, that's not going to happen. Not on my watch. You know, I want to, you know, so I, I end up, I'm, I get really passionate and I'm, and, and so I'm like, how long do we have until your husband comes back? <laughs> and, and so she's like, well, you know, probably he'll be back in the fall. And, and so this lady went from taking like one lesson a week and then we went up to like two lessons a week. And the next thing you know, she, she started coming like every day. <laughs> and, and I kept telling her like, we are gonna perform your, you, when your husband sees you, he will never dance with anybody else at this Christmas party. My goodness. And so, so sure enough, and I find out along the way, like her husband is like a black belt in karate and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, oh man, now I'm worried, like what's this guy gonna <laughs> think when I've been dancing with his wife while he's been gone this whole time? So um, I'm like worried this guy's gonna attack me. So, so sure enough, the night of her performance, she does her very first solo routine performance and we do two dance routines and her husband shows up in the doorway with his suitcase. Like he came directly from the airport and this guy is watching us and there is, he's like, he's got the, the, the stoicism and the demeanor of like a stone cold killer. He's just standing there and like an executioner, like that's how I felt. And I'm trying to perform with his wife and, and, and by the way, she's like gone down a couple of dress sizes. Her body shape has changed, her confidence. Even her daughter would come in and suddenly now they're really outgoing and they felt like everybody knew them. And, and, and this woman like really changed. And I was like feeling so proud about this. And then now I'm thinking it's all gonna get taken away because the husband just showed up and it's gonna backfire. So this guy watches it with his arms crossed. And at the end of the night, he walks up to me and he says, he holds his hand out and he says, are you Chris? And the comic 
in my head wanted to be like, no, you know, but, <laughs> but <I'm, laughs> so he says, are you, are you Chris? And I was like, yes. And he shakes my hand and he looks at me and he says, thank you for making my wife so sexy. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know what's happening? And then he goes, and he's still really, you know, stoic. And I'm not, I'm not getting any sort of body language signals that this is a good thing or a bad thing. But he said this thing and that kind of catches me off guard. And then he says, and he kind of drops, the, drops his guard and he says, now I need to take dance lessons because she's so good. She's better than me. <laughs> and, um, and so that was like the moment for me where I felt like I had my first like life-changing student. Like the person that not only like, I felt like I was responsible for that change but also that she changed me in the process. Like that this is what's possible if you, if you kind of care deep enough about the story on the other end of, of you know, the customer service dynamic. And when he said that, it was like, they will, they will never be the same in such a good way. They'll never be the same again. Like this, this relationship just kind of got this new positive trajectory that never could have happened if she hadn't walked in for the first time. So, so that to me is like one of those one of those moments I feel like is like a treasure for me. Oh, wow. Thank you for sharing that. There's, there's more questions I wanted to ask in this section, but that's such a chef's kiss story. So I'm going to, I'm going to put a pin in those. And, um, there's something I re- I read that you had written where you said athletes begin to learn their skill before they're ever on a team. Is that something that you implement when you're, you know, when you're talking to someone who comes to you, who's never had a dance, like they've never even put on dancing shoes and they are just kind of timid. Do you, do you maintain that belief with that as well? For sure. Yeah. I think it- I think we all like, I think just in our society, it's a shame that there are things that we accept as a process and then things that we don't accept as a process. And so, for example, people believe that you have to be born like, you know, like Prince or somebody like, you know, he's always been a musical genius. Well, yeah, he's, he is a musical genius, but we didn't see the thousands of hours of practice that he put in. And, and we didn't see him clunking through the guitar for the first time. Because because he's not gonna he's not gonna campaign with that or lead with that in his on his poster you know or something <laughs> like that and um, and he's not gonna release that album you know but <laughs> but I think we accept we accept some things as a process like learning how to drive we accept as a process you know we all accept that parallel parking is kind of sucky for most people right and we accept that as a process building a Lego set is a process we don't expect to just open up the you know the the box and have it be pre built. My kids opened up a box of cake mix and were really disappointed as two year, two and three year olds that there wasn't a cake inside there, you know? I mean, that's relatable. So accept, I get it. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> like, dang it, you know? But um, so I think when it comes to learning how to dance, for example, that we, there's everybody, there's a lot of people, I should say, fall under the, the assumption and this misnomer that, that you need to be born as a dancer, that you need to be born with rhythm, that you need to be born with some skill set. And the reality is it's just a process. It's, it's a recipe that we follow. And, and just like a Lego build, like when you turn the page in a Lego, I mean, I am fascinated by so many different things in terms of the teaching process, but a Lego instructional manual is so genius because every single time you get this, you get this like cathartic response from a kid because they put one piece in the right place and you turn the page and there's this physical element to this and it feels like progress. And kids accept that, but as adults, for some reason, we campaign for why we we don't need to do that thing because we weren't born with it. And and so we always, you know, Catherine Murray, Arthur Murray's wife had this great slogan and she said, the hardest step you'll ever learn is the first one through the door. 
And, um, and I feel like that's, that's, the, that's the unlock. You know, there's so many doors that we're not willing to just walk through, but we can sure come up with a lot of like, you know, internal marketing campaigns for why it would be dumb anyway, you know? Oh, wow. and, um, and I feel like our comfort zone has, is, is sort of like a pop-up ad and it's like, an, it's like a marketing team that has an unlimited budget and can show you as many banner ads as possible to get you to click on them and believe them. And, and unfortunately, there's a lot of missed opportunities because of that, whether it's first dates or singing karaoke or taking a dance lesson. And I think that really, I believe that everybody, everybody's life would be better. Like nobody could say my life would be worse if I knew how to dance. You know, nobody could say that, you know, like, it'd be like if, if I could sing like Mariah Carey, my life would be so horrible. Like no one would say that, you know, like I would love to be able to sing like that, you know, you know, maybe, maybe not that, that same Christmas song that I hear from her all the time, but still like, <laughs> made her millionaire. You know, I think, yeah, but, but, but the idea is that, you know, how, how willing are we as adults to tolerate the, maybe the, the humble stages of an early part of a process, mm. but we'll do it with cooking and we, we make we turn it into like a romantic comedy moment when we're cooking something and we think it's cute and we, we should put on some sort of Motown song and, and live you know, life like a Julia Roberts movie or something when, when the reality is like cooking is just the same process as dancing or taking guitar lessons. But unfortunately, we convince ourselves that we have to have already had the skill to then start the process, which is sort of backwards. Sure. I really appreciate that. All right. Well, Chris, I, I know you're he's he's on press tour right now. You have a very tight schedule. So before we kick you off of here, um, how can people get in touch with you? Um, you know, uh, I, I didn't find you on the socials, but it's possible you're on there and I just couldn't find you. But um, how do people get I'm going to I'm going to uh, repeat the name of the book and everything in the outro. But how do you how, how do how do people buy it? How do people get to you? What's the deal? Yeah. So good question. The um uh, so I'm on Twitter and it's at Lynam, so at L-Y-N is a Nancy, A-M is a Mary. Um, and um, I have a Facebook group right now that is called the Choreography of Customer Service. And um, people from all different businesses and walks of life, whether it's business owners or frontline employees are on there and we're just jamming, posting great quotes and snippets from the book and um, you know, challenging people with questions and, you know, things like that where we're, you know, it's a really cool place for, for like, to kind of further the, the discussion of some of the, the things from the book. Um, and you don't have to have any dance skills to be a part of that Facebook group. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and then my website is, um, is in development. I'm sure that that's kind of a normal thing you might hear from time to time, but, um, but it's, it's my name, Chris Lynam, and it's .co. Um, there's, a, there's a comedian in England whose name is Chris Lynam, and I'm sure that he has the domain of chrislynam.com. And I've been, I've been bidding on that forever, and I, I haven't <laughs> been able to get it out from his grasp. But, um, but, yeah, yeah, but it's chrislynam.co. And, um, yeah, and then the book is available on, on every major platform. So it's, um, uh, it was crazy. My daughter found my book on Target just, like, out of the blue when I was driving her home from school, and she was like, it was so, I, I almost got like choked up because she was like, daddy, you're on target. Like you are a real author, you know? And I was like, oh, <laughs> you know? Are you? so, um, <laughs> yeah. So, so like target and Barnes and Noble and Amazon, of course, and, um, Goodreads and things like that. So, and it'll be in all the major like bookstores and stuff too. Hell yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on. This was so lovely and it was so oh, great to have yeah. you. 
you're you're I am I am super pumped like this was great like you're such a great interviewer and I love like you make me want to make my podcast better like I love your segments and how clear-cut everything is that is such a cool format and man I am I have got I've got some I've got some podcast host envy right now oh I appreciate you well wait what's your podcast can you can you promo it so people can listen to you too yeah yeah so um so my podcast is called off the floor and you know part of the book and also kind of something I'm just obsessed with is like the backstory of people, you know? And, and so on that show, I'm interviewing all different types of people, professionals that whether somebody who's, you know, a rapper or a chef or somebody who there, I interviewed a, a gal who's, um, she's like a, 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 a hula hoop, you know, influencer. And, and she does like hula hoop conventions and shows and, and does these like team building activities and stuff and just all different walks of life. And I'm always trying to find like, what are the, what are the trace elements of, of success and in, in learning lessons and these wonderful stories and how do people make these like pivots to get to where they are? But then also like, what can we all take from that? Even if we don't do all of those things and, and that's always really fascinating to me. And, and so, um, I love it. So yeah, I've been doing it off and on. It's kind of tough to keep a podcast going, you know, and, but it's no excuse, but you know, having, having more kids kind of, um, <laughs> puts oh. a little, puts a little damper on your free time for, for that. So I don't know how you have any free time. Um, well, thank you so much for being here. I'm going to record the outro. You can, you feel free to leave. I know you're running into your time of your, of your other interview, but thank you so yeah. much for being here. I really appreciate you. Good luck with the book sure. stuff. Well, folks, we're going to drop your checks now. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to help us out here at Service from Hell, we'd love to have you subscribe, rate, and or review the podcast wherever you listen. It will help us reach more people that need to be schooled on the art of being kind and will be catharsis for those of us working in the industry. And thank you to those of you who have rated and done all the things. We've noticed the numbers. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If you want to get in touch with us here at Service from Hell directly, send us your receipts to servicefromhellpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Remember, if you can't afford a tip, you can't afford to go out. So don't be garbage and be good to people. It's easier that way. In the show notes, we are going to have all of Chris's contact information and where you can buy the book and how you get to get to know him better. And and maybe some of his amazing positivity will translate on to me and to you and to all of us in the world so that I will be less bitter when I'm hosting this. <laughs> Thank you, folks. Take a look. Buy his book. He was a delight. Super lovely. Very kind. So yeah, buy the hell out of that book. Thank you, folks, so much for listening. Good night. Good night.